Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Reverend Riley Pickett. Reverend Riley Pickett, she, her, is an ordained Presbyterian USA or PCUSA minister currently serving as interim pastor for Hagar's Community Church, a congregation planted inside one of the largest women's prisons in the Washington state. She holds her Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and is passionate about creating worshiping spaces for folks who have been historically excluded from the church, especially queer and trans people. She is happiest by a body of water on a mountain or when surrounded by books and her people. So let's welcome Riley to the show. Uh, thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I, um, yeah, oh my gosh, there's so much. So I'm the interim pastor of Hagar's Community Church, which is a congregation planted inside the largest women's prison in the state of Washington. Um, we are in Gig Harbor, Washington, uh, which is outside of Tacoma, south of Seattle. So that's kind of my location. Um, and in terms of my social location, some identities that I think are important to know about me um, are that I'm a queer woman, I'm cisgender, I'm in my late 20s, so I'm still fairly young. I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I... There's more. I don't need to list off every identity, but... Those are maybe some things that people should know about me um, yeah. that inform inform who I am. Great. Thank you. Um, I will confess, I know this is about you, Riley, but I feel like I need to confess. I was just recently bemoaning 20-somethings, so forgive me. Um, I'm, okay, I'm almost 30. Yeah, so we won't, yeah. I was on a discussion board for, I'm taking... A class right now and it was like mostly 20 somethings i'm just bemoaning um anyway this episode is not about me it's about you so i shouldn't have revealed my age but you know what i'm just honest to a fault and felt like people should know i'm still a young pastor i'm a young woman and that informs my work because a lot of people don't take me seriously and it's just part of my context is that I'm a young woman in ministry, a young queer woman in ministry, and that ends up affecting a lot of things in my in my job, even in the prison, and the way people interact with me, and uh, for better or for worse. I feel like we should just scrap the entire episode we'd planned and talk about that, um, mm-hmm. because I, I think that's a challenge that I've experienced in mainline circles of kind of, I don't know. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I think, I think others will be able to relate. Oh yeah. I know there are. (laughs) 
Well, tell, if you would, about your journey of faith, how you came to the faith and what that looks like today. Yeah, I mean, long story short is that I was born and raised Presbyterian USA. My mother, my saint of a mother, Harriet, who will be listening to this episode and will be absolutely beaming that I just said her name. Um, she raised me in First Presbyterian Church in Pensacola, Florida. And my parents got divorced when I was really young. So the church was the family that raised me. And so I was just really brought up in the church um, as I feel like growing up in the church, it was less about actual church stuff and more about the people mm -hmm. um, and more about community, which maybe is what it's all about. Yeah. Um, but I just really feel such warmth towards the church. Um, and I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've had more complicated feelings about the church and yeah. uh, a lot of frustration and anger and disillusionment has come up, but still I always have just such a love for the church and, um, because it's community, it's a place where, uh, we come together and there's not many spaces like that, mm -hmm. um, yeah. where it's just built in, built in community and there's just vulnerability built into it just inherently. So that was kind of my my childhood and i never thought i'd be a pastor but um i guess uh me playing church in the living room when i was a kid was an <laughs> early sign but i uh i i taught english for a while and uh, oh, wow. didn't consider didn't really consider going to seminary but then i did um i had a really tough first year of teaching mm -hmm. i was teaching eighth grade english in florida and it was just a it was just a difficult first year of teaching is super yeah, hard yeah. and it was just made even harder by the by the administration in the school and so i decided to take a year off teaching after my first year I already <laughs> needed a year off mm -hmm. and i did um i did a volunteer year in new orleans which is where my family lives now and where i was born and through the young adult volunteer program uh which is a pc usa mm -hmm. volunteer program and I did that volunteer program. This is relevant because my supervisor that year was Pastor Lane Brubaker, Reverend mm. Lane Brubaker. Mm -hmm. And she was the founding pastor of Hagar's Community Church, which oh, is the wow. church in the prison mm -hmm. that I work in now. And so after that volunteer year, for many reasons, I applied for seminary and I went to Princeton Theological Seminary after that year mm -hmm. and I graduated during the pandemic. And so wow. um, I graduated May 2020 and it's wild that it's now 2022, but um, this call at Hagar's Community Church is my first call as a pastor. Um, yeah, I started out doing some reentry work for people getting out of prison. And then when Pastor Lane um moved away, um, moved away from this job. I took over on the inside of the prison as the inside mm -hmm. pastor. That's so fascinating that, you know, while you weren't, well, this isn't, you're, you're not brand new to ministry per se. Like your, your first call has been encompassed by the pandemic. What are they, what are we, what are we calling like the, the 18 year olds and below like digital natives? Like you're a pandemic native in your ministry experience. In ministry. Yeah. Like, no, it is actually, 
I don't know why I haven't thought about it like that exactly, but like all my friends, like my friend Caddy in California started a solo pastor Mm -hmm. position in the pandemic as a 20 something queer woman. And like that has been just incredibly difficult. It's just been incredibly difficult. Like, being a first but also it's all we know Mm -hmm. so there's a benefit in that yeah you have pastors who've been you know in ministry for 20 years and then this comes up and it's like a huge what do we do what do we do but we had to go into it and like we're coming out of seminary where they teach you all the innovative stuff and Mm so maybe we had a benefit in coming straight into it um but yeah it has it's all i've known about ministry except for like you know my little field ed placements and seminary and right. all the kind of little things I've done outside the pandemic. But this was just a totally different ballgame. Yeah. Well, talk about spiritual practices that are meaningful for you or you might recommend to others. Ooh. Yeah, that is a good question. I I feel like my spiritual practices lately have been communal prayer with the women in the prison Mm -hmm. and worshiping with the women in the prison. That for me has been my spiritual practice because they bring me, they teach me so much and bring me so much joy. And I am just continually getting just like absolutely different reads of the Bible than I would, you know, Mm. I wouldn't be able to get those, their perspective, getting the perspective of someone that's incarcerated yeah. Is a really I I feel very privileged to be able to read the Bible through their eyes and get their, you know, get their takes on everything because not many people have access to people inside of prisons. Like they're locked away for a reason. They don't want the people that lock them up don't want them to be a part of the community and right. don't want don't consider them valuable members of the community. And so I get to go in there and they just absolutely enrich my spiritual life and my faith. And I get to hopefully do things like put together fury and grace, which we're going to talk about so that other people can get to hear what I get to hear. Um, So that's like my main spiritual practice, but honestly, like writing sermons and creating worship services is kind of a spiritual practice for me. Um, I'm a writer at heart. You know, I have a background in, teaching English and I've just all, and I did journalism for a little bit in college. I just, I think I just say that to say, I've always been interested in telling stories and I've always loved to write. And so writing sermons to me is spiritual practice. Um, Yeah. I I could like keep going on. I love talking about spiritual practices, but that's my main, my main thing I got to say. Yeah, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, I use the word, pandemic native, even more so, it's almost like, I imagine you're kind of like leading the edge on this shift that's taking place in church of the pastor being like the, the center or the, the sole distributor of, of teaching and wisdom and spiritual thought. And like what you're doing, it sounds like in your work. And I think through, through this book, for example, and in the prison is what I see is a shift taking place of this communal based mm-hmm. teaching and wisdom and learning. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool um, that you're the on the priesthood of all believers. Yeah, yeah, you're on the leading edge of that. 
<laughs> so it's awesome. Yeah, I feel like I'm like actually taking the priesthood of all believers that like reformed Protestant, you know, mm-hmm. idea for those that I don't know if people listening have heard about that idea. Um, but it's basically, you know, a way to decentralize leadership and kind of say that all all people, lay people in the church have, you know, wisdom to share and we're all leaders. We're all spiritual leaders in the church. And so I feel like I take that and like it's actually like made explicit and um so like through this through this book like i'm really trying to make them i want them to be the teachers i want people to hear their voices and their perspectives and i want that to inform the like larger faith like i want their voices to be at the center of theology like <laughs> how often have people like them been centered in theology i mean right not often which again is cool cuz again it speaks to i think some of the the themes or undercurrents that's been happening, I don't know, in the last 30, 50 years, in a, certainly I think at least in America, of this shift from just privileging privileged voices to to trying to center and privilege marginalized voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that we still have a long way to go. I know even in seminaries, like, they try to privilege marginalized voices, but it ends up still just being kind of a side piece to the yeah, main stuff. Yeah, like yeah. in these theology classes, there's like a special day where yeah. you have all the people of color and their theology, but then the rest of the class is still still centered on Bart and Calvin and Luther and like great, like those are big voices in theology. Um, but it, they got to the marginalized voice has got to stop being just kind of like a special day on the side that we just listen to for a day. It's got to be like, I want to center those voices. It reminds me, Jared Bias, who doesn't need any, any of my, <laughs> he, he's, they've got, they do some great work, him and uh, Pete ends on the Bible for normal people. Um, but I remember one of the things they say is like the, the adjectives, all his point, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, is all theology has adjectives. We just don't traditionally like what we've classified as just quote unquote theology has really been like white male theology. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's kind of like a secret, like an invisible mm-hmm. kind of. Um, those two words are invisible before theology, but when mm-hmm. people say theology, that's what they mean. And right. so we got to make, make sure we know what we're saying when we yeah. say theology, like let's define our terms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, uh, before we talk about the book, she mentioned Fury and Grace. I just want to kind of talk about the tradition of Lent, why Lent matters. This is a book written for Lent. For some from our, of our listeners, they may not be too experienced with Lent. Um, you know, I grew up independent Baptist, so Lent was totally foreign to me. Uh, talk about Lent, why it matters, the, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I will totally tell you. I'm obsessed with Lent. I can tell you all about Lent, why I love it. Yeah, so go I, for it. I am interested. At some point, I, if you will, um, I'd love to hear what you think about Lent, too, growing up not in that kind of context. But, I mean, I grew up Presbyterian. Um, Lent is a little more mild than it would be, like, in the Catholic Church. Um, we didn't do a lot of fasting or anything too intense. It was more kind of like, you know, 
we're going to give something up. We're going to give up chocolate. We're going to give mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like every year when I was a kid, it was like, I'd give up some sort of like food mm-hmm. and it was like pretty easy. I don't really think it brought me closer to God. <laughs> I think it was just like kind of a fun little challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just in general love the liturgical calendar. I love having um, things to mark time. I really mm-hmm. love just like the cyclical nature of the liturgical calendar. Uh, I love ritual. And so I just really like, uh, I like Lent especially because, so it, Lent comes before, it's, this, it's the 40 day liturgical season leading up to Holy Week mm-hmm. and Easter. Um, and Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. Um, and Ash Wednesday comes after the season of carnival. So those that are from New Orleans or Mobile or are familiar at all with Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Mardi Gras season, which is called carnival, starts on Epiphany, January 6th, and then ends on Ash Wednesday. So it's like this um, Mardi Gras is this time of bacchanal and debauchery and just revelry and just people associate it with just like getting really drunk. But it's just so much more meaningful um, than that for me. It's just a time of like enjoying the like the things that we get to enjoy being in a body. And this this is relevant, I promise, for Lent. Um, Lent is made even more special to me because I grew up with Mardi Gras, because I'm from New Orleans. And you have this time of carnival and celebration. And then on midnight, of of that Tuesday of Mardi Gras, the whole city gets they they clean the, they stay up all night cleaning the city, mm-hmm. and then the next morning you wake up and it's Ash Wednesday, hmm. and so it's like this time of indulgence before Lent, which is seen as a time of more temperance mm-hmm. and of discipline and of spiritual renewal and of fasting and giving things up and uh, you know, in order to kind of that discipline, you know is in service of becoming closer to God and uh, spiritual renewal. So yeah. Oh gosh. What else do I love about it? Do you have anything to say? No, <laughs> I think what I just said, I think I don't it's, want to just keep talking. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, you, you ask um, me growing up independent Baptist, you know, independent Baptists are very like our way or the highway is the only way. And I, I remember even a, a few years ago, my old youth pastor posting something like Lent was one of those dead man's religions or something to that extent. And I, it's a shame, I think, because I'm kind of like, I would class myself as like low church, but appreciate ritual because like, I think like you said, ritual has a way of like connecting us to one another, tying us to deeper roots. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about Lent about and I think, like you said, it helps mark time. And I think that's important for humans is to have rituals and celebrations for us to mark seasons and occasions. And uh, it gives meaning and purpose to our lives, I feel like. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I just also, I think personally, why I love Lent is because in another life, I would absolutely be just like a monk. I would be a nun. I would be like in my, in a convent, Hmm, I'd mm -hmm. be, I'd be like, 
I'd be like the desert fathers. I'd be in a cave somewhere with like a single candlelight with my journal and my books. And I would just like, I just love, I, I love devotion. I love, Mm -hmm. I love, um, I'm a mystic. Mm -hmm. I would say I I would self-identify as a mystic. And I love having this time set apart to have a spiritual discipline and to just like devote myself to that spiritual discipline daily. Like, I just love the idea of that. I just love ritual. Maybe it's because I'm someone with anxiety and I just love routine. Yeah. And like, yeah. It's just like a really, yeah. And, and Lent is a little bit of a darker season, I would say, even though it's coming into spring. Right. There's room, like there's room for lament. Mm-hmm. in Lent. Like it's a time to take evil seriously, both in ourselves and the world and call for repentance because Lent is all about repentance, turning another way, getting getting serious about sin. And like that can be such a turnoff for people. But I think it's so important to like without shame, you know, be able to confess where we have fallen short and where we've missed the mark so that we you know, the truth sets us free. And I love the idea of taking evil seriously um, and calling for repentance. And maybe it's the like American self-help spirit in me. But I just love the idea of trying to be better than the than I was the day before. And I love the idea of growing in my spiritual life of ritual and devotion and discipline. Um, so, yeah. You have some great uh, things there. I'm going to try to to build on. Um, first, I'm going to jump ahead because what you yeah. said intrigued me about the title of the book, Fury and Grace. Mm-hmm. So the book is called Fury and Grace, 40 Days of Paintings and Poetry from Prison. So you mentioned a few things there about um, taking evil seriously, repentance. I think I heard forgiveness or maybe I imagined it in my mind. But again, those things feel like they relate to your title of Fury and Grace. And especially I'm thinking, I don't know if this is what was meant. Fury, maybe the fury of taking evil seriously. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk more about maybe, I'm giving you a lot here. Talk more about the the title of the book. Yes. Okay. So there's kind of, um, I can answer that in two parts. Mm -hmm. The first part is just literally the title comes from a poem written by Rachel, who is incarcerated at the Washington Correction Center for Women. And Rachel is a longtime member of Hagar. She's been coming since the first day um, that the church started uh, when Pastor Lane founded the church. And uh, yeah, so it comes from a title of her poem and the, the title poem isn't actually in the book, which is a total missed opportunity. And it's because it's a really long poem and we didn't include it. But I'd love to, in a minute, read an excerpt from the poem, Fury and Grace. Sure. Just because I think it would, I want to put Rachel's words on this podcast. Like, I don't want it to just be me. I want Rachel to speak a little bit to Fury and Grace. Um, But we do say in the preface of the book, we talk about like, what does fury mean to you? What does it mean to be furious? And we talk about how like fury, that emotion, you know, all of our emotions are connected to God and can help us learn more about ourselves and our relationship to God. And so our hope for the book is that it, it will not only allow you to become furious about things 
such as the injustices of our world, Mm -hmm. but will also allow you to become delighted, challenged, and curious on the way. Along the way, we say, through your fury, may you discover God's grace. Mm -hmm. And so we just think that anger and fury, um, there's a use. I mean, Audre Lorde talks about the uses of anger. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, anger gives us data. Like, Mm -hmm. if we're getting angry about something, there's something that's been violated in us or there's something that there's something that's violated a value or a boundary. And like through that emotion of anger, like we can follow that deeper to figure out why am I angry and how how can I what can I do with that anger instead of just letting it, you know, instead of letting the emotion control me, how can I do something with that and through that fury, how can I discover God's grace? Like where, yeah, where is God showing up um, in the midst of all that injustice? Where is God still working? Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Uh, again, we're kind of going backwards here, uh, but yeah. you hinted at it. Talk about kind of what inspired the book and what brought it about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when the pandemic started in March 2020, Pastor Lane was the pastor of Hagar's at that time. And um, a lot of things had worship became restricted in a lot of ways. We Mm -hmm. had to start worshiping and we were doing one big worship service on Saturday night. It was like 150 people. And then when COVID hit and things started to get, you know, we had to start doing social distancing, masking, Everybody knows what I don't even need to say that. We all know. We all wear the mask every day. Yeah. We're over it. Yeah. Um, so we had to start doing small groups of worship. So Lane was leading six worship services a weekend. Wow. Because she had to break the hundred and fifty people into smaller groups. Mm-hmm. And I'm not in the prison right now because there's a mass COVID outbreak. So Oh my if, goodness. I anyone listening listening to this, please pray for the folks incarcerated inside the Washington Correction Center for Women Mm -hmm. because there's a COVID outbreak and they're locked in their rooms. There's no programming, whatever. But besides the point, talk about that later. Um, She was doing small groups of worship and they weren't allowed to sing anymore. And they Mm -hmm. weren't allowed because of the, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the risk of the particles. I don't don't know science, the particles, (laughs) like it going out. But um, so Lane started to do, um, she introduced art and poetry into worship as a way to connect with God and with each other, because it was a a good way in a small group to be able to, instead of singing, um, be able to express um, our worship through art. And so they, they did a lot of painting and a lot of poetry writing. And that was kind of, um, the the book was born from that the art and poetry that was created in the book yeah like springs forth from that from that worship and so we had all of this art and all of this poetry and we were like nobody's getting to see it Mm -hmm. We're, we're getting to see it it's in the walls of the prison but like how could this how could this art and poetry nourish people outside the prison and we had the idea of putting it in a book and making it into a devotional and so we gathered all the art and poetry and lane crawford and i crawford is uh 
Reverend Crawford Brubaker is Lane's husband, and he was really involved with Hagar's Fidity Church. And the three of us um, kind of curated um, all of the art and poetry and with cyclical publishing's help, like we put it all together and wrote devotionals to go with the art and the poetry. And it's a daily devotional. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, Give some ideas on how churches, groups, and individuals can use this again in small group settings in the broader church, maybe for their own uh, private spiritual practices. What are some ideas? Yeah, I think it's really, really good for both individual, and um, we kind of created it with both of those things in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we really encourage people in the book to see the book as a communal creation. Like, this book was co-created by, you know, 25 people. It, it includes the art of over 20 artists inside the prison, plus me, Lane, and Crawford, And so we really want it to be, when people are reading the book, we want people to mark it up. Like we encourage people to draw on it, to write in it, to let their imaginations run wild and to, you know, let it inform their own life. Like let it bring up, um, relate it to their own life and really just like consider the experiences of those that are incarcerated. And we just really want it to be like a springboard to a lot of conversation whether that's internal conversation and reflection or conversation with a group. So I think we created it so that a group could use it It um, each day. So it's daily and each day has a reflection, a piece of art, a scripture, a prayer and a question. Hmm. And the question is um, the question is uh, really meant to lead to discussion. So like, for example, there's a question right here um, on day. I should have been more prepared and had like a day picked out, but I just want people to hear like these questions really would lead to deep conversation on page 14. It says, have you ever paused to imagine how your spiritual vision and your spiritual healing are affected by memory and the habits of the heart? In what ways might a habit of prayer or participation in a worshiping community shape your spiritual eyes and your spiritual ears? And there's more after that. But each these questions are really meant to, um, they could be used for personal reflection or group reflection. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think it's, again, interesting to the theme we've been talking about throughout this, of this centering of marginalized voices and perspectives you know, you say considering the experiences of the incarcerated. And I I think it's such cool work. Uh, Let me ask this. um, Again, as we're recording this, it's what, end of January. This will, God willing, come out before Lent here soon. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I'm a hospital chaplain. I still believe in, in prayer. What are some things that people can be praying for? You mentioned this COVID outbreak and there's a whole we could spend a lot of time talking about the injustice of folks being stuck, incarcerated and dealing with these COVID outbreaks. Um, what are some things people can be praying for as they're listening to this for the, for the Hagar's community church and the folks residing there? I really deeply appreciate that question and yeah, can definitely tell that you're a chaplain. I, 
Just got to say, I love hospital chaplains. I have a special place in my heart for hospital chaplains. My dad was a doctor, and when I did CP in a hospital, it just absolutely changed yeah, everything yeah, for yeah. me. And I will, I will probably be a chaplain sometime in the future. I just, I love chaplains. So that's super cool to learn about you. And yeah, I really appreciate that question. I mean, God, there's just so, I just, just holding them in the light and just thinking about them and remembering that they're in there and that they're stuck in their rooms and that they don't have access to the phone right now. They have like 20 minutes a day where they can use the phone. And sometimes, you know, you're not going to get access if you've got a bunch of people trying to use it in only 20 minutes and they're not getting to communicate with their families. They don't really know fully what's going on because things are just kind of happening to them. People are being moved randomly to kind of spread people out. And Mm -hmm. some people get a chance to grab their stuff and other people don't get a chance to grab their stuff. And so just like the living situation right now, the living conditions are not great. People don't have all their clothes. So people aren't getting as many changes of clothes as they need. Um, they're having to just get their food delivered to their room. And so I think there's a lot of probably, um, boredom and loneliness and restlessness and, um, a lot of just isolation. And so I say all these things so people know how to pray for them. Um, I think people are also very scared. I hear the word terrified. People are terrified. People are scared. And Those I hear those two words all the time, just the uncertainty of not knowing when this is going to end. It's a really big outbreak and you have to have 10 days of no cases in order to open back up. And so I just have no idea when I'm going to be able to go back inside and lead actual in-person worship services and having their programming taken away, programming like school and gym and chapel. Those are what makes incarceration somewhat bearable. Yeah. And without having that, it becomes unbearable to be stuck in a cage for, you know, 23 and a half hours a day. Yeah. I mean, that's just the human spirit, not yeah. being able to be in community. So I just, I just asked for prayers for their, for their mental health, for their, just for endurance and for moments to sustain them and for, them to know that they're not forgotten, that we are thinking about them and we love them and we're just praying, you know, we're just prayers of intercession every day that this come to an end quickly and that they come out of it as intact as they can and that they are able to just in this time have things that really nourish them and sustain them and that they can just hold on and remember all the people in our faith all the people in the Bible that were incarcerated and all those times of having to, to sit in a cell and just, they find solace and knowing that they um, have special knowledge because Jesus was arrested and incarcerated and they get to know what that's like yeah. while we don't get to know what that's like. I mean, not that it's good that they get to know, but right, right. that, that G I just say that because Jesus, I don't bring Jesus to the prison. Jesus is already there. Yeah. And so Jesus is in there. Jesus is in there with them, especially. Yeah. And I just want them to hold on to that right now. Yeah. Well, I can really hear, really hear your heart for those folks. So uh, we need to take a break, but let's do this. You mentioned having a reading uh, from, 
one of the, the women who inspired this. And I feel like that'd be a great way to kind of end this segment with that reading. So yeah. do you mind sharing that? And then we'll take a break. Yeah. Um, it's three pages. You want me to do an excerpt? It's not, I mean, it, he writes really big. Yeah. Do an excerpt, part. I guess. Yeah. I'll just kind of pick, I'll pick some parts out. So this is by Rachel and she is, incarcerated at the Washington Correction Center for Women, and the title of the poem is Fury and Grace. I have broken wings and shattered faith with the dreams I cannot erase. My life is timed and untamed, hidden fury, rapid sorrow, no good feelings for tomorrow, trapped in this rage, desiring to live with grace, shameful wrath that stuck with pain. Feelings I cannot blame. I want to fly away without this chain that's obscuring my point of range. Like a roaring lion that feeds off fear, their power to prance on whomever they dare. My aching heart where this darkness shreds it apart. And then there's a turn in the poem. But we should still stand tall. Pain gives strength and then courage takes place. Integrity is taught. And thus patience is brought like a two-edged sword. Bring on the pain of tomorrow. With my might, I will hang tight with all that I can. I will not play the devil's, the devil's selfish games. I will take up my cross and walk with Christ. My wings will glow. I am the clay. My potter gives me the way. My dreams are no longer of rage. My life is timed but tamed. My core of sacred grace. I have stood up and held my place. My chains are gone. I will not fall. The gates are opened. So I have good reason to continue tomorrow because my savior has my life. Now I stay standing and pay his price. That was great. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Reverend Riley Pickett. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for sharing that poem and uh, excited for listeners to check out the book. Um, these yeah. closing questions, you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? Okay. So there's two parts. Yeah. One, one part. These are, these are my two options. Okay. And I'm sure you've heard this first one before. Abolish the paper. <laughs> yeah. Done. You've heard it before, haven't you? I love that's the f funnest answer. My Catholic Knowing friends probably wouldn't like that. And you know what? I say it in jest. I just say it because I'm Protestant and mm -hmm. I'm sure I, I know that you've had a lot of mainline people on here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, abolish the papacy and rebuild from scratch. Uh -huh. You know, for starters, allow women and queer people to lead. So that's my first option. Mm -hmm. My second option, because I have to make everything gay, I, if I was Pope, I would call on every media outlet and make some global announcement that celebrated queer and trans people and called for them to be in pulpits everywhere. Hmm. That'd be a good day then. Uh, I, <laughs> in, I'm trying to get like a Catholic on the show. Uh, I would be most yeah. curious how they would respond to that question, but you know, yeah, appreciate you. No, know, I really, I really want to know. I love, I love Catholics. I do. I love, I had a really good friend that was Jesuit and I just, she was wonderful. And I, I would love to hear that episode too. Yeah. Um, talk about a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. 
Okay, so I did. I'm not gonna lie. I thought about these in advance. Mm-hmm. So I, <laughs> I was like, hmm. I should say Carl Bart or Calvin or yeah. Luther, but honestly, like, I just don't want to hang out with them. Sure. No offense yeah. To them, like, may they rest in peace. I just don't want to hang out with them. Yeah. Someone that I really love, who I discovered in seminary, who wrote the book Indecent Theology. Her name is Marcella Althouse Reed. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Marcella Althouse Reed. She's a Latin American theologian. She died. She died some years ago. I want to bring her back to life for sure and have a dinner party with her and have a glass of wine and chat because um, so she wrote Indecent Theology. And I looked at the book last night to remember what it said. But the back of the book literally says all theology is sexual theology and decent theology is sexier than most. Hmm. And that's their kind of like they want to hook people in yeah. with that sentence. Yeah. Um, but that sounds like she'd be pretty fun to have at a dinner party, right? But um I think more that's seriously a- <laughs> I'm just really interested in um pushing the boundaries of what we consider decent and indecent. Hmm. Um for example, queer people are still largely only accepted in church if they're like a decent queer person. For yeah. example, married, monogamous, cisgender. Mm-hmm. So like we're still gatekeeping what queer people can come into the church and even queer people themselves, like Matthew Vines. I don't Mm -hmm. mean to call him out. Like he's done a lot of really, really good work and I really respect him, but he still only argues for, you know, decent queer people to Mm -hmm. be led into the church. Queer people that are pushing the boundaries even further, then it's really hard for them to kind of cross that boundary. But her work is just like super explosive. It's like a fusion of queer theory, liberation theology, po- post-Marxism, and post-colonial analysis. And just to say it's intersectional and it's asking us to just keep thinking like beyond, beyond, beyond these lines that we've drawn around Jesus who cannot be contained. Well, it sounds very interesting. And I like your your metric there of who do I want to hang out with. Yeah, yeah, I just... If I'm going to hang out with somebody, I want it to be someone that would be fun at a dinner party, not boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like um, I'm all about I'm all about a party. I'm a Leo. Yeah, um, poor our you know, forgive us for the Bart and Luther <laughs> lovers out there. No, can I just can I say that I I do love Bart and yeah. Luther. Yeah, I do love them. I just don't want to hang out with them at a dinner party. That's fair. That's fair. I uh, listen to a lecture. There you go. There you go. Uh, what do you think history will remember from this current time and place? Well, a lot has happened in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, I'm sure people will talk about the insurrection that happened on January 6th. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people will talk about the 45th president. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure people will talk about how we walk around in masks all day now. Yeah. Um, but really, I think that people will just, I think that this years long, and it's wild to say this years long pandemic. Yeah. I think um, people will talk about how it was apocalyptic, like in the true sense of the Greek word apocalypse. Yes. Like, yes. Not end of the world, but like this pandemic was apocalyptic in the sense that it revealed, mm-hmm. it pulled away the veil, and it showed us all these broken systems and not even broken because that implies that they you know, used to be or whole to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. But they weren't, they were designed this way on purpose and it just absolutely pulled away and shown us the evil 
of these systems that are so just grounded in white supremacy. And I just become more and more of an abolitionist, a mm-hmm. prison abolitionist. And mm-hmm. Hagar's Community Church, um, we as a church are invested in prison abolition because we don't want to be going into this prison and um, not at the same time working to uh, tear down these systems of of death, these, uh, you know, these absolute, you know, co- industrial complexes. Of, they're just death-making systems. And I just feel really called to dream and imagine a different way in light of these past couple of years, especially, and just how much it's revealed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you hope? What do you hope for the future of Christianity? Yeah. So I read a quote recently. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. I read a quote recently from the late Rachel Held Evans mm-hmm. that said, I'm not afraid to say that if the church in the U.S. is dying, let it die. Let it die to the old ways of hegemony. Let it die to violence. Let it die to control. Hmm. And honestly, I can't say it better than that. Um, I love the church, but I will say that I hope that the church will be less concerned with survival and power and more concerned about living out the actual gospel, even if that means their death. I just think that the stakes are high and that if the church dying is good for, you know, if it, if it serves the actual gospel, then let it die. You know, like we need to be less concerned about just keeping churches open. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Well, where can find, excuse me, where can folks find out more about you and uh, the church? Okay. So the best place to go is just our website, which is Hagar's community church.com. Hagar's is H A G A R S. And then community church. And if you scroll down to the bottom of our homepage, you can subscribe to the newsletter and that's where you get all the up-to-date information about what's happening. So like we have events pretty regularly, like next month we have an event with abolition apostles where we're going to teach people more about pen palling with incarcerated people. And so if you want to get plugged in with a um, pen pal inside of the prison where I work, especially in this time when they're locked down, come to that event. So if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get a lot of information about the church. And then also I try to post on Instagram. We're at Hagar's community church. Great. And I try to, if we have some sort of event coming up, I'll post it on there too. But yeah, I would love to, there's lots of ways to get involved. Um, even if you live nowhere near Washington. So I would love to just meet some new people, reach out. My email's on the website. I'm always down to have a virtual coffee. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time and, uh, wish you safety and health out there and for your folks may God's peace be with you yeah and also with you thanks so much for having me this was really fun thanks for joining us on the future christian podcast to learn more about lauren or the podcast visit future-christian.com one more thing before you go do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast and if you're feeling especially generous leave a review It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. 
Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Thanks.